Welcome to the Weekly Appellate Report for March 2nd, 2018. I'm your host, Brian Cardile. This is the Daily Journal's weekly podcast considering salient constitutional and appellate law questions. Amidst a busy week of opinions and arguments, the U.S. Supreme Court heard a challenge Wednesday to a Minnesota law prohibiting voters from donning political apparel at polling places. Challengers contend the measure is an unconstitutionally overbroad infringement of the First Amendment's right to free speech, and that it targets innocuous, passive political speech distinct from the sort of active campaigning and electioneering at polling places that laws previously upheld by SCOTUS prohibited. But our guest today, Dan Weiner from the Brennan Center for Justice, who filed an amicus brief in support of the law, says it reasonably advances important governmental interests of preventing voter intimidation and ensuring peace and decorum at polling places. It seems at least a few justices at oral argument shared that view. We'll hear from Dan in just a few minutes, but first, let's get to our opening briefs. One case decided on this week by SCOTUS was a long-running immigration appeal begun back in 2007. In it, a class of various categories of immigrants, some apprehended at the border attempting to enter without authorization, some seeking asylum, others with legal status who were rendered removable by dint of committing certain crimes. That class challenged that their detentions during removal proceedings were indefinite, usually months but sometimes lasting years, and not accompanied by individualized bond hearings or periodic hearings supporting their continued detention. The Ninth Circuit had held that immigration statutes, read in harmony with the Constitution's Due Process Clause, mandate such hearings at least every six months. But a 5-3 court Monday held otherwise in a ruling that answers the narrow statutory interpretation piece of the case and leaves now the larger constitutional question of indefinite detention of immigrants for the Ninth Circuit to reckon with. More on that is our immigration reporter, Chase DiFelici Antonio. Chase, thanks for being on the podcast. My pleasure. Glad to be here. Could you help me unpack just what this ruling is, is saying, and I suppose equally importantly what it's it's not saying you know, at the, the heart of this case is the question as to you know, whether it's constitutional for, for immigrants awaiting removal proceedings, some number of which um, will be deemed not eligible for removal and will be released into the country, um, whether they can be held indefinitely without any sort of judicial arraignment type hearing. Um, but that question is not answered by the court here, right? They're addressing a more narrow question. What is that question and how does the majority here answer it? Right, yes. Yeah. So they're, uh, they're, they're specifically not ruling on the constitutional issues here. It may seem surprising and on first blush to uh, say indefinite detention is uh, not uh, disallowed. But what they're really saying here is that um, there is a Ninth Circuit affirmation of a district court injunction uh, basically saying uh, that there could be constitutional problems um, by not requiring a bond hearings every six months for immigrants that are in government detention. So in order to avoid that, they're going to put an order out, which they did, the Ninth Circuit, to require those bond hearings. They're not requiring that people be released. They're just requiring that if someone has been uh, in detention for a certain amount of time, that they get to go before a judge and plead their case um, to be released. But the Supreme Court here is saying that uh, they are misinterpreting the law, they are misinterpreting immigration statute, and that uh, as non-citizens, um, those people do not have a right uh, to have those hearings before a judge. So it's for now, 
um, for certain people, indefinite detention uh, in immigration facilities is, is still going on. There is a pretty vigorous dissent here from Justice Breyer, um, along with Justices Sotomayor and Ginsburg. Justice Kagan was recused from this case. Um, and I read his dissent to suggest that the, the, the majority sort of only addressing that narrow question evinces some some willful blindness to the fact that if you if you do say okay nothing in the statutory law requires a bond hearing every six months in effect you're answering the more substantial constitutional question at least impliedly in the affirmative that indefinite detentions are okay um is that a fair read of what he's saying could you uh, walk me through his dissent yes i mean he is giving us a good preview of what the arguments for the unconstitutionality of indefinite detention are. So Breyer is essentially saying, if you go back and look at Supreme Court case after Supreme Court case, and he's exhaustive in the cases that he enumerates here, then there's nowhere in, in the case law, in the case history, uh, where the court has said that indefinite detention is okay. He's saying if you're a person and you're physically in the United States, then indefinite detention is unconstitutional. And obviously this case is, they didn't make this case about that, but he, he does touch on uh, the Constitution and really what is, has been characterized to me as an ancient kind of age-old debate. Obviously you cannot hold citizens indefinitely. That's very, very clear in the U.S. Constitution. Uh, but there is this question of if someone is physically here, uh, do they have certain rights just by being on U.S. Soil Justice Breyer, reading a 33-page dissent from the bench, uh, loudly says, yes, they do have those certain rights, um, but he was obviously uh, shouted down or rushed voted down in this case. Okay, so that, that broader constitutional question now gets kicked back down to the Ninth Circuit, but um, two justices, Gorsuch and Thomas, concurred here, as you write in, in your piece on like, the opinion uh, their contention is that the appellate court does not have jurisdiction to hear this appeal. What What is that argument? Right. So they're obviously, Gorsuch and Thomas here are representing the, pretty much the most conservative wing of, of the court. And they think this is, especially now that there's been a ruling on this, they think this is a, a, a dead issue. Um, Thomas was saying, you read the immigration law and the law in general as that accepting a petition for review from a final deportation order um, the Ninth Circuit shouldn't even be looking at this, and therefore the Supreme Court shouldn't even be looking at this. So, Gorsuch seems to agree with him here. Um, so I think we can extrapolate something from that as far as how they would vote on, on the constitutional issue, because they don't even think that this is uh, rightly going through the courts in the first place. Yeah. Um, the last, last one in the case is now, again, before the Ninth Circuit. What exactly will the uh, the Court of Appeals be considering? It seems like there's at least a couple of questions, one of which is just whether the, the class action approach here is the, is the right vehicle. This is a, a group of sort of different types of immigrants uh, apprehended in different manners. So at least that does seem to uh, be hinted at by the High Court that maybe these cases need to be dealt with individually. What, what all will the Ninth Circuit be dealing with? Right, so they, um, the majority here is kicking the case down, back down to the Ninth Circuit, and they're saying to reconsider, or re- at least re-look at some of the jurisdiction issues, and they're also saying this case may not be a, a, a class action in the first place, and that, as you say, they, it may more rightly be considered on, on a case-by-case basis for, for each person as far as what they're immigration situation looks like, uh, deportation, et cetera. 
Um, so those are kind of the threshold issues that they're telling the Ninth Circuit to look at. But then beyond that, the larger question here is they're really setting them a pretty significant task of looking at this, this age-old question of uh, do non-citizens in the U.S. have certain rights when it comes to detention? Um, it's been characterized to me by law professors as a very complicated, unresolved constitutional question that the Supreme Court wants the Ninth Circuit to digest a little bit more for them. They, the Supreme Court uh, said in, in, in the majority opinion here that they're not a, a, a court of first impression. So they want uh, these issues to be a little more distilled, crystallized, and um, and broken down at the lower level for them before they uh, weigh in on what is, if it does indeed arrest the Supreme Court, what is potentially going to be a very impactful decision uh, around detention um, for human beings, uh, specifically non-citizens uh, in the U.S. Okay, so surely far from the, the final word written here then, uh, but we can leave it there for now. Chase DiFelici, Antonio, thanks for being on the podcast. I appreciate it. My pleasure. Thank you. In case the Supreme Court will not be hearing anytime soon is the Northern District of California's injunction the case brought by the Regents of California challenging the Department of Homeland Security's decision of DACA. Ninth Circuit reporter Nick Sonnenberg has more on that. And also on another surprisingly little-noticed DACA challenge that's already made it through the Ninth Circuit. It's been on the doorstep of the Supreme Court for almost a year. Nick, thanks for joining the podcast. Of course. Thanks for having me, Brian. So this order down from the U.S. Supreme Court to denying the, the fairly uncommon appellate maneuver that the uh, administration was, was trying to pull leapfrog in the Ninth Circuit, uh, doesn't sound like it's really surprised anyone, and it doesn't really affect the the appeal that is working its way up through the, the Ninth Circuit now. Um, with that said, is there anything, you know, of, of note in the order, any, any tea leaves that folks might be able to read? Right. Um, the order itself is not that surprising. Most of the professors and attorneys uh, I spoke to expect this outcome, but there were some uh, unique attributes about the decision. Um the court specifically said that the uh, writ, uh, the cert petition, was denied without prejudice. Um, now, the petition comes to the court at a very early stage in litigation. We're talking about a, an injunction early on um, in terms of when the case was filed. So, technically, any cert petition that's denied by the Supreme Court at an early stage, uh, which many Supreme Court cases are, it is denied without prejudice, but the Supreme Court went out of its way to specifically write that this was the case. Some people said that was an indicator that uh, the court might be interested in hearing this issue at a later date. And the uh, the second sentence the court included uh, requested that the Ninth Circuit proceed expeditiously uh, in hearing the case. So there are a few uh, few things to, I guess, interpret um, in, in how the uh, decision came down. Okay, so the ball now uh, remains in the Ninth Circuit's court. But, but there's one case that you, you, you flagged in your, your article about this order that's gotten a, a bit less attention than, than this appeal just, just ruled on, the one from the Northern District. Um, it also relates to DACA, and it really calls into question its, its legal grounding. It's out of the state of Arizona. Um, it's been on the Supreme Court's docket. It's gone through the Ninth Circuit and has been ready for, for, for review by the high court, but that has not been granted or, 
or denied. Um, what What's going on with that case, and how does it relate to the one just ruled on? Right. Um, so the case uh, is Brewer versus Arizona Dream Act Coalition. Um, and this case, as one might be able to surmise from its name, uh, started in Arizona. Um, a group of plaintiffs basically challenged an Arizona law that conflicted with the mandate of DACA. Arizona, when issuing driver's licenses, requested that an applicant prove that they were a citizen or a lawful resident of uh, the United States. Um, now, DACA, as it was written, required states to issue driver's licenses to those who were undocumented but came to the country early on in their childhood. Um, and so this group sued, um, uh, you know, against the state of Arizona. The case made its way to the Ninth Circuit. The Ninth Circuit said um, in, in a three-judge uh, decision that Arizona had overstepped its bounds um, by uh, dealing with immigration issues effectively, which is the bailiwick of the federal government. Um, there was a vote to take the case en banc, um, and judge or former judge Alex Kaczynski wrote a lengthy dissent when the uh, court voted not to rehear the case, um, and he said that because DACA was implemented unilaterally through executive power, um, there's no case law, there's no constitutional precedent requiring a state to be subordinate to that executive decision. Um, and he said that Arizona was well within its rights to regulate who it allows to drive on its roads, and, and that the Ninth Circuit had gotten the case wrong. Um, in March, uh, the state of Arizona petitioned the Supreme Court to hear the case, and uh, it's been sitting at its doorstep since. And and now with the, the case from the Northern District um, being petitioned to, to leap over the Ninth Circuit, I understand the state of Arizona thought that would be an opportune time to sort of uh, remind the Supreme Court that it, that it already has a DACA appeal, as you say, on its doorstep to deal with. What uh, what have the, the filings been like recently regarding uh, this case? Right. Uh, so in, in January, uh, shortly after the government uh, petitioned the United States Supreme Court to skip the Ninth Circuit in the Regents case, uh, the Solicitor General of the state of Arizona wrote to the justices and reminded them essentially that the case was, was sitting at their doorstep and that it, it should consider both cases, especially if it takes the regent's case. Now, Noel Francisco, the Solicitor General of the United States, responded two days before uh, the justices were to conference and consider the regent's case and, and, and disagreed with the state of Arizona. He said that um, Arizona's interests had been taken care of when the government decided to rescind DACA and that the question of DACA's existence or demise would be handled by regents. Of course, the Supreme Court decided not to hear regents, and so um, Arizona responded to that um, suggestion, suggestion from Francisco, uh, just this week. Um, in a filing late Monday, the state of Arizona basically accused the Solicitor General's office of of using their case uh, as, a, as a pawn, so to speak, in their in their attempts to get uh, get regents in front of the Supreme Court uh, without going to the Ninth Circuit. I just want to read uh, two quotes from their brief. They said, the goal of this argument, that being um, uh, Noel Francisco's, lodged just two days before the court conference regents was to make that extraordinary petition appear necessary. Um, he continues, the uh, Arizona AG does, and then says, focused on its own project, the United States offers none of the analysis 
for which the court presumably requested its participation, and that, again, referring to the Arizona case. Um, and yesterday, the case was finally uh, distributed for conference, and the justices will consider whether to take the uh, Arizona case, which strikes more at the constitutionality of DACA, uh, in mid-March. Fair to, to say the Arizona Solicitor General there is, is pretty uh, displeased with his federal counterpart. Um, do, you, do you have any sense from talking to folks why the, the U.S. Solicitor, Solicitor General's position is to shunt this Arizona case off to the side for the time being and have the focus be on the region's case? Well, it's hard to tell. Again, for some reason, people have just not been paying attention to this Arizona case, um, as far as I can tell. They haven't been watching it as closely as they have been watching the uh, the region's case. Again, you know, the behind all of this, lurking behind all of this, was the uh, the the decision several years ago um, by the Supreme Court to hear a different challenge uh, or a different case involving the legality of DACA and its sister program, DAPA. Um, Several years ago, the Supreme Court deadlocked four to four when Scalia uh, passed away, and uh, they left in place a Fifth Circuit decision upholding an injunction against uh, expanded DACA programs. Um, so clearly the Supreme Court is interested in this case, um, and they haven't had an opportunity to weigh into it. Um, some people have suggested that perhaps Francisco thought that the government had a better chance in the region's cases um, than they did in the uh, Arizona case. Again, the Arizona case cuts at the heart of the program itself, whereas Regents deals with the uh, winding down and certain um, administrative procedures the government has to go through. But it's all speculative. It's really not clear. Okay, but clear now is um, the, the the briefs are, are being submitted to the Ninth Circuit. Where, where are we at in terms of the, the appeal in, in our circuit? And I understand there's also one coming up in the, the Second Circuit, right? That's correct. Um, so the Ninth Circuit, before the Supreme Court even asked it to um, proceed with, uh, with speed in the appeal, uh, the court itself requested expedited briefing. So the government's first brief was filed in February. Um, we're expecting a response brief to be filed from the plaintiffs in the DACA suit um, on the 13th of March, and the government has one last opportunity to respond to that brief um, on April 10th. I checked uh, an hour ago, and we still don't have an oral argument date, which is typical. That usually doesn't get set until briefing is done. Um, so, uh, we, I guess we'll get our next update uh, in two weeks. Uh, as for the New York case, uh, district court judge there issued an injunction similar to the one in DACA, and uh, that case has gone on appeal to the Second Circuit, which will consider similar issues going forward. Sure. Okay. Well, we'll look forward to having you back on to to chat about uh, those appeals as as they as they go on. Uh, for now, Nick Sandberg, thanks for being on the podcast. I really appreciate it. Of course. Thanks for having me, Brian. Wednesday, the High Court heard oral argument in Minnesota Voters Alliance v. Mansky. It's a First Amendment challenge to a state law prohibiting voters from donning political apparel at polling places. Dan Weiner is a senior counsel with the Brennan Center for Justice's Democracy Program. Formerly as a senior counsel with the Federal Election Commission, he filed an amicus brief supporting the law and joins us now. Dan, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much for having me. Okay, so let's dive in. You, you filed an amicus brief in the case argued before the Supreme Court on Wednesday. Uh, Minnesota Voter Alliance versus Mansky. 
in the case of Minnesota law is being challenged. That law regulates the sorts of things folks in Minnesota can wear to their polling place. Um, namely, it regulates or prohibits the wearing of a certain political apparel or maybe political apparel generally. We can get more into that. Uh, but tell me a bit more about this law, um, what it reaches, what its purpose is, and sort of the ways it's distinct or, or similar from laws existing nearby it in the statutory code, um, prohibiting sort of more active campaigning and electioneering at, at polling places. That, that latter sort of law, of course, not at not issue in this case. Right. So Minnesota, as does every state, actually, uh, prohibits the wearing of certain types of, of uh, political peril and other political activities in the polling place. The thing to really know about Minnesota's law that is the distinguishing factor here is that while many, many states uh, prohibit basically what we call electioneering, which can include um, the passive wearing of campaign paraphernalia for candidates or, or parties, um, Minnesota purports to prohibit all, quote, political apparel. Um, and it's actually, the language is, is political buttons, uh, uh, signs, etc. But um, the word political has been interpreted by the state to denote a somewhat broader category of, of messages. So not only candidates, parties, but also um, other uh, apparel promoting groups with, quote, recognizable political views. And what the plaintiffs, uh, who then became the petitioners at the court, uh, argued was that that effort to, uh, prohibit the apparel, uh, that, that promoted other groups with recognizable political views or, you know, other sort of issue advocacy, um, was overbroad under the First Amendment. And Minnesota is not alone in doing this, incidentally. There are, you know, there was some debate at the court, but there are uh, about a dozen other states that also, a little less than a dozen, who also have similarly broad rules. But there seemed to be a sense uh, at the court that Minnesota's law was more expansive uh, than that of, uh, of a number of other states. Maybe we can start with where this lawsuit grew grew out of and, and then the sort of apparel at issue. I understand that this is a, a facial challenge, but the, the sort of clothing that, that triggered the suit was, uh, for one, I think a, a sort of button that in, uh, folks wore to the polling place in Minnesota encouraging um, the poll workers to, to ID them and said, please ID me. And then a kind of different sort of apparel, just shirts identifying voters as uh, members or supporters of the, the Tea Party. This is back in 2010. Um, tell me a, a bit, bit about those sorts of apparel that sort of triggered the suit. Right. So as you said, the um, the folks who ended up being petitioners in this case wanted to wear two actually somewhat different types of apparel. So so one, they were part of a so-called, um, mo- I think almost all the petitioners were participating in a so-called election integrity or ballot integrity effort uh, designed to prevent uh, voter fraud, you know, designed to present, prevent in-person voter fraud at the polls, which as our research at the Brennan Center has shown is, is actually virtually non-existent. And they wanted to do that. Minnesota does not have uh, an, an ID requirement to vote. Um, 
And, uh, in fact, later after this case filed started, the, the voters in Minnesota actually rejected a proposed ID requirement that was put before them in a referendum. But the, the petitioners had buttons that said, you know, please ID me. And the idea, and this is actually in the record, and it was, it was noted by the trial court, was the idea was to, and I quote, you know, wear the buttons and, and, and cause, and cause a quote, chain reaction whereby, uh, you know, poll workers, even though they weren't supposed to, would start checking ID and everyone else in line would show ID. And so, and then the, the website, I think, specifically said Minnesota does not have a voter ID requirement, but let's act like it does. Um, so that was one sort of type of apparel they wanted to wear. Um, the other type was that they wanted to wear uh, apparel, I think, T-shirts that said, you know, Tea Party, and then had various slogans associated with the Tea Party, like Don't Tread on Me, Limited Government, that sort of thing. And, and in fact, those were the only types of apparel that were at issue in this case. And there isn't actually, um, interestingly enough, like any record evidence of anyone trying to wear anything else and being told to cover it up or, or, or not wear it at the polls. So there, the briefs are full of other sort of hypotheticals about, you know, shirts that say NRA or, or, or AFL-CIO. Um, but those are just hypotheticals. The the two types of apparel that I wanted to wear was the only type that there's any documentation that actually uh, the state sought to prohibit. Okay, and then just one note on the procedure here. This uh, law has survived the challenge thus far. The district court and, and a circuit have both uh, right. upheld it, correct? Yes. So the case had a somewhat complicated procedural history, although, you know, not that unusual at the Supreme Court. Um they, uh, you know, filed the lawsuit, uh, in the District of Minnesota, uh, the, their lawsuit got dismissed. They went up to the Eighth Circuit, uh, the Eighth Circuit, uh, dismissed, so they, they filed a lawsuit that originally I think had facial and as applied First Amendment challenges, and then I think they also actually brought an equal protection claim. Um, the, the, the original trial court dismissed everything. They went up to the Eighth Circuit. The Eighth Circuit dismissed the, the facial challenge, um, sent the as-applied challenge back down. They, back to the district court, which promptly, dis- well, actually not promptly, you know, and, and as is usually the case, eventually dismissed the as-applied challenge. It went back up to the Eighth Circuit, which affirmed. And then they filed cert, but they didn't file cert on the as-applied challenge, or, or the court didn't grant cert. Uh, they filed only on the facial overbreath challenge. So before the court, uh, even though there were a number of other claims that had been litigated below, before the court was the single question of whether Minnesota's statute uh, was facially overbroad and unconstitutional. And of course, as you know, facial overbreath means uh, it's though one of the very rare areas of law where uh, a petitioner can potentially succeed even if their own conduct was validly prohibited but the courts judge that the that the law um, you know chills a substantial amount of protected speech relative to le- its legitimate sweep um, it can still be invalidated so what they were arguing was essentially that even if they uh, their conduct could be prohibited which they didn't think it could be the law that the law still was unconstitutional as facial because it was facially overbroad yeah it was a bit of an interesting first amendment law quirk there that folks yes. whose speech can be regulated can still pr- 
prevail just based on the idea that right. the law will touch folks who, who should be able to, to speak. Um, Always throws everyone in Fed courts off. <laughs> I remember that from when I was in Fed courts, and it, it always sends everyone into a little bit of a tizzy. So in, in your amicus brief so supporting the law, I just wanted to touch on sort of the, the, the broad framing of it. First, I thought it was interesting the way you pose it as two competing First Amendment rights as opposed to, in some free speech cases, either on one side the rights of speakers, and on the other side the government seeking some particular government uh, governmental interest. Um, here you pose two competing rights, so on, on the one hand the folks wearing the apparel, and on the other hand um, voters seeking to exercise the right to free association and vote effectively and safely. Uh, tell, tell me about that, that framing. One of the things that I think the most interesting about this case is, and, and you see this a lot, um, is how each side wanted to frame it. And um, petitioners, very understandably, were eager to sort of adopt the classic First Amendment, Amendment posture of intrepid speakers up against sort of a state bureaucracy trying to vindicate First Amendment rights to free expression, with, you know, a bunch of government bureaucrats on the other end sort of vaguely gesturing towards public order or whatever else the, you know, big bad government uh, doesn't want people to do so that everything will just be quiet and calm. Um, and then that's, you know, very much part of the sort of uh, legend of the First Amendment and the image people have in their minds. But the, the point that we wanted to emphasize is that um, the First Amendment protects much more than just the right to speak. Um, in pertinent part, and, and this has been a major theme at this term with the court, uh, both in the redistricting context and elsewhere, the First Amendment actually protects the right to vote. Uh, the voting is sort of the quintessential act of expressive association that the First Amendment encompasses. Um, and so when the state uh, tries to regulate the voting process in a way to ensure that everyone is able to vote, free from harassment, confusion, intimidation, that sort of thing, the state itself is vindicating a vitally important First Amendment interest. And in fact, within the confines of the polling place, which is a very limited space, um, you know, I don't think anyone would dispute that the right to vote, the First Amendment protected right to vote, needs to be paramount. And speech, uh, which, you know, it would be a different case if someone were just walking down the street, but speech at least within the polling place, needs to yield to voting. Um, and Justice Kennedy, actually, who is no slouch when it comes to the First Amendment, um, has made that point uh, in Burson v. Freeman. And, and this is one of those limited areas where the First Amendment itself may require uh, expression to yield to other important interests. As you, you hint at there, the, the application of First Amendment doctrine and, and judicial scrutiny often will depend on where regulated speech is taking place. So here right. it's within a polling place, which can the Supreme Court doctrinal term of art is a, a non-public forum. So is that does the case sort of exist entirely within that analytical doctrinal framework, which, you know, as folks will know, tends to cast much less scrutiny on speech regulations? Yeah, so, you know, I tend to be one of the people that thinks the sort of rigid categories of scrutiny and demarcations are, are you know, by the court often honored more in the breach than anything else. Um, and so, I, and, and interestingly, the, 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 
the petitioners in this case certainly, um, you know, wanted that to be the case. They, they, they were not about to try to argue that a polling place is a public forum, um, because I just don't think they, they would get anyone to agree. And so they were very, you know, they hastened to kind of make the point that even within a non-public forum, uh, it's not a, you know, quote, First Amendment free or a, a First Amendment free zone or a free speech free zone. Um, and and at the Brennan Center, frankly, we agree. I mean, we we think that there are certain types of expression in the polling place uh, that should be protected. Uh, one of the hypos that came up uh, in uh, the the oral argument was, you know, what would happen if the state um, decided to ban uh, people from wearing white in polling places uh, because that seemed like sort of an expression of solidarity with the Me Too movement. Um, and, you know, the, the state's lawyer, interestingly, uh, said that he thought the state could do that constitutionally, even though it... it, it doesn't want to, um, and I, I'm not sure I agree with that. Like that, that strikes me as possibly too far, even within the non-public forum of the polling place. But without question, this is a different situation than if you're just telling someone walking down the street that they can't wear a "Please ID Me" button or a or a or a Tea Party button. Um, the you know the polling places are government-controlled property that are set aside for a very different purpose. And I think that, you know, that that clearly informs what the state can prohibit and what it can't. As you say, First Amendment free speech rights are not yielded altogether when folks enter non-public forums. And in the um, petitioners here hammer that point home, citing, you know, the, the line of cases where free speech rights have been vindicated in those sorts of non-public or quasi-public forums like Tinker and, and Cone versus California. The, how do you think those cases bear on, on the case here? Do you sort of distinguish polling places from the forums that issue there, schools and, and courtrooms? How, how, how do you distinguish from those cases? Well, I mean, it really gets down to what are the reasons for prohibiting speech or restricting it. And, you know, the public forum and, and the non-public forum doctrine uh, doesn't say that, that non-public fora are, quote, you know, free speech free zones. What it says is that, you know, rather than having a compelling interest, the government needs to only have what amounts to a reasonable interest. Um, and, you know, in Tinker, uh, they didn't find the proper, uh, interests reasonable. Um, in, uh, this case, uh, the government really sort of zeroed in, it seemed to me, on two predominant interests. One, uh, you know, was a long-standing view that, that speech can be restricted in a polling place to prevent confusion, uh, harassment, or intimidation, um, and that was a theme in person, and then also this notion that uh, decorum in the polling place in a, in a politically polarized society would also be at least a reasonable interest, um, uh, you know, for preventing uh, speech. And, and with respect to the former, uh, the Brennan Center, and, and, and our brief focused on that because that is... Um, really at the core of what we do. Uh, we, we, you know, uh, have long 
fought for uh, a voting process that's free from intimidation and that's clear and user-friendly. And at least, particularly with respect to the Please ID Me buttons, you know, we set forth in our brief um, extensive research that shows that, you know, uh, there is already a lot of confusion about voter ID requirements. Many people who live in states where ID is not required actually think it is. And letting people go in and vote, uh, you know, wear, wear apparel in a polling place, giving the false impression that ID is required, is actually very disruptive and potentially, certainly confusing and potentially even could lead to intimidation or harassment. Um, so, you know, in our view, and we said in a brief, that would be a compelling interest to prevent that, that, that material. And certainly it was reasonable. Um, you know, and I think that there's a story to tell about intimidation about political paraphernalia, too. If you support candidate X and you walk into a polling place and literally everyone is wearing buttons for candidate Y or party X and other people are wearing buttons for party Y, um, that also uh, is at least has the potential to be intimidating enough that it's reasonable um, for the state to bar it from a non-public forum. Um the decorum interest then was, uh, you know, one in the idea that voting should be sort of a moment where you put aside partisan differences and you enter this kind of calm space uh, that, uh, you know, allows you to, to make your decision. Um, I'm actually agnostic on that point. I think that the law can be upheld just looking at uh, intimidation and confusion for the reasons that we articulated in our brief. But I would say that it got more traction with the justices than I might have expected. Justice Kennedy, for one, uh, uh, seems persuaded that that's a legitimate rationale um, and that, it, again, at least within the sort of uh, limited confines of the polling place, um, trying to foster a sort of neutral contemplative environment um, is a valid state interest. Um, so, so it's really, but again, it really comes down to whether the proffered interests are sufficient to justify the speech restriction. And, and I think that's ultimately what's going to decide this case. Yeah, I thought that was pretty interesting too. Um, it seems almost sort of quaint that there, there sort of could exist now a, a space where there is, you know, no uh, political turbulence that you're peaceful and uh, right. at uh, ease to, to think about anything but politics. But it did seem to get some traction with, like you said, Justice Kennedy. I think Justice uh, Chief Justice Roberts also seemed to, to cite that interest. Yeah, know. and of course, Justice Breyer, um, this is this is perhaps one of his two or three issues that he cares most about is the liberative democracy and the idea of, of preserving a space where um, you know, classic deliberation that he idolizes can happen. And that was very clear in his comments, the oral argument. Um, so, so it is, that is clearly something, frankly, that has, um, I might almost say more, more traction with the justices than even I expected it would. Did the, the distinction that, that you draw in the brief between the, the please ID me buttons and the sort of more general t-shirt uh, apparel, um, you argue there's a, a more compelling interest for the government to want to regulate the former. Did, did the court treat those two things sort of analytically different in the way that you've described them and as you described them in your brief? Well, the highlight of the argument for me was that not only the court, but the petitioners, which was a, they, they tried to pretend that it wasn't, but it really was made, they did a 180 on the please ID me buttons and basically conceded that under some circumstances they could be prohibited. 
Um, which is funny because this case really, if you go back and look at it, the heart of the case originally was the police ID me button. And they, they essentially threw them under the bus and said, yes, you know, because if they were confusing or, or intimidating, you know, efforts to sort of um, manipulate voters and manipulate the voting process in a way that's not consistent with state law, clearly the state would have an interest in preventing that. Um, and, and instead they wanted to really focus then on, on the Tea Party button or the Tea Party paraphernalia and their other sort of hypotheticals. And, you know, I'll be honest, I do think there's a difference. And, and our brief made this, I think, fairly clear. Like, I, my view uh, is that prohibiting Tea Party paraphernalia within the non-public forum of the polling place is reasonable um, because the Tea Party, uh, particularly at that time, uh, really was uh, sort of directed towards uh, electing candidates. Um, and, and while it wasn't technically a party, it basically played a party-like role, where maybe it was sort of a sub-party, a faction within the Republican Party. Um, would I say that there's a compelling interest in preventing Tea Party paraphernalia in the polling place? Probably not. Um, I just don't think that the state needed to come up with a compelling interest, and that's in contrast to the Please ID Me buttons and efforts to sort of confuse voters around voter ID, where I do think that there is a compelling interest. Okay, now, the challenge of the petitioners here, uh, naturally, as an overbreadth challenge, really comprises a lot of hypothetical situations in which maybe more innocuous apparel could potentially be captured and prohibited from polling places, things like Sierra Club t-shirts or uh, Me Too buttons. I know hypotheticals came up at oral argument to sort of test out exactly where the outer limits of this uh, statute reach. Um, what is your your thought and your approach to, to this overbreadth uh, concern that, that the law will catch a lot of stuff that seems pretty innocuous? Well, you know, it's interesting. This is um, one instance, and I, I was not his biggest fan. Um, I'm a, you know, work, I'm, I would consider myself uh, not an adherent of originalism, but it is one instance where I really did miss the late Justice Scalia because he was the one that pointed out that the overbreath doctrine, you know, has a tendency to foster kind of an avalanche of hypotheticals. Um, and that's basically what happened with Justice Alito, you know, sitting there and sort of saying, what about the NRA? What about people wearing white? What about this? What about that? Um, hypotheticals alone have traditionally not been enough to succeed on an overbreath challenge if all the the speech that was actually prohibited um, it was constitutionally prohibited. You don't necessarily need to show that your own speech was burdened, but you should be able to show that someone's speech was unconstitutionally burdened, not just that there's this possibility. Um, and, and one of the things our brief does is sort of suggest, look, if the court is worried about hypotheticals, um, there are a number of less aggressive and less extreme measures than holding a statute unconstitutionally overbroad to deal with that. You can impose a limiting construction. You can frankly just say in dicta, uh, you know, we're not overturning the statute, but some of the, the hypotheticals petitioners presented probably would not be okay, and people then can bring as applied challenges. Um, but that really gets to the heart of it. And, and I think actually Justice Scalia got it right that, you know, a passel of pure hypotheticals that, that have never come to pass 
should not really, in and of itself, be enough to bring down a duly enacted statute. Um, similar, but but I think analytically separate. There's a sort of a flavor of a vagueness challenge in the the petitioner's uh, arguments yeah. as well. That being that the prohibition against you know political apparel is either ambiguous or just you know not terribly precise, and so that could you know lead to things like uneven or unpredictable enforcement. You, know, you can have polling workers targeting folks um, really without a whole lot of notice as to what exactly is being targeted. Um, what's what's your thought on, on the, the, the vagueness concern? Well, the vagueness concern certainly um, troubled the court. And I think that, you know, that is um, candidly, I would say, probably a respondent's um, greatest point of vulnerability. Um, respondents, I think, made the valid point that it doesn't seem that anyone actually is that confused. Um, again, we have no record of anyone else um, being turned away at the polls. They wouldn't have been turned away anyway because respondents had a policy that people would still be allowed to vote. But there's not a record of anyone else encountering problems um, in Minnesota. Um, and, you know, poll workers have to draw lines in a variety of contexts. Um, and And what you need to do is you need to train them well to do that. Um, nevertheless, you know, if I had been uh, crafting an interpretive policy for this law um, and trying to define political, uh, I might have been a little bit more precise than the state. Um, I think political, you know, ought to mean... Um, clearly uh, directed towards, uh, you know, elect electing a candidate or a ballot initiative or a party or, you know, otherwise attempting to sort of uh, manipulate the actual process of voting through uh, intimidation or confusion. Um, that is essentially the limiting construction that we, we included in our brief and we thought the court could adopt or could ask the Minnesota Supreme Court to adopt if it had concerns. Um, so, you know, I actually don't think it's that hard. Um, I, I, again, I, uh, and I'm not saying that what the state did is unconstitutional, but as a, as a supporter of free expression and as someone who, who, uh, you know, believes people should be able to, to wear, you know, what they want, more or less, in the polling place, I probably would have taken a slightly narrower approach. Right. And, that, and I should say, I'm speaking only for myself sure. here, that the Brennan Center does not have a, an official position on Minnesota's policy, um, other than we think it's constitutional, whether or not it was what we would have chosen to do. Sure. Um, in, in your brief, though, you do note that that is an option for the court to, if it, if it does feel concerned about these overbreadth and vagueness mm -hmm. challenges or worries about application of the law, um, what it could do as opposed to striking it down altogether is is, is, is narrow it to a, a construction that would only reach the sorts of things maybe you mentioned, like uh, apparel meant to intimidate or having that effect. Um, the other side here says that's not really possible because the statute itself is just too, too vague, the word political, in that and that law um, creates the problem, and, and that can't be solved. The court can't rewrite the statute. Can you tell me, t tell me about the opposing arguments on, on that point? Well, I mean, their their point is just that the statute is hopelessly vague and that there's no way the court could, you know, plausibly adopt a construction. I, I really 
find that that argument strains credulity to some extent. And even some of Respondent's own amici, you know, suggested limiting constructions, uh, sort of trying to borrow the standard from campaign finance laws, express advocacy, um, you know, which is language clearly uh, intended to, to uh, advocate for the election or defeat of a candidate or ballot measure through words like vote for, um, et cetera. Um, and, and there's a long history of the court uh, adopting uh, limiting constructions notwithstanding very open-ended statutory language. Um, I, I do a lot of work on campaign finance, and in the Buckley case, uh, the court, you know, pulled uh, very specific rules out of a very broadly worded federal campaign finance statute. Um, and, and did so happily. It did so also in skilling when it narrowed the honest services uh, fraud prohibition uh, to basically mean bribery or kickbacks. So I think that the sort of argument that, oh, they couldn't possibly, you know, come up with a construction that, that furthers the core goals of the statute and is consistent with the text, I, I just don't agree. Um, and I, and I actually think there's a pretty obvious construction here, which is sort of, I, I wouldn't use express advocacy, um, cause I think that whole concept of sort of magic words is, is deeply flawed, but I think you could say, um, uh, apparel that, you know, any reasonable person would think, uh, was, uh, intended, um, to, to, you know, influence an electoral outcome, uh, uh, of the election where it's being worn. Um, plus, you know, apparel intended to confuse or intimidate voters. Um, I think that, that that fits nicely within the statutory language. Um, and, and, you know, that's why we, we advocated for that in our brief. Um, so, you know, it's funny because I just think that the court has, the court has, uh, used its creative powers to, to come up with, uh, much more sort of you know, conjured up interpretations in other cases that it would have to here. Related to the idea of, of line drawing, you know, one premise that undergirds the, the petitioner's argument here that restrictions on political apparel go too far, whereas you know, restrictions on campaigning or electioneering at a polling place are fine, is that it's easy to tell the difference between the two. And an argument I thought it was interesting that Justice Gorsuch noted it, it isn't always so easy to tell what... Yeah, I know. I thought it was fascinating that they couldn't even persuade Gorsuch on yeah. that. That, you know, and it isn't, right? Like, if you wear a, I mean, if you wear a billboard on your head, you know, say, take, you know, a two-foot by three-foot sign on your head, is that passive or active? And, and I think he was right. I, I just don't think that 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 distinction really held up very well. Um, and and the the whole the whole sort of line between passive and active expression, I've always thought um, is difficult because what the please ID me buttons they originally the respondent or the excuse me the petitioners portrayed as just passive issue speech, you know expressing a preference for voter ID. But then if you go and look, they were anything but. They were intended to to actually um, get. Uh, to change the process of voting so that, that poll workers would, would check ID and people would show ID. So are they passive or active? It just doesn't seem like a very workable distinction. I mean, what you should look to instead is, you know, the actual sort of uh, potential to disrupt voting. 
um, whether it's passive or active, which is, I think, the, the lens that the court should use. You mentioned that, that several justices acknowledged the, the reasonableness of the sort of government interests at play here, but there was some challenge to the stated interest, most vocally from Justice Toledo, but I think uh, Chief Justice Roberts also uh, hinted that maybe the, the small fine that's um, assessed when folks violate this this law might suggest it's not terribly necessary. The point was made that many states don't have this you know broad of a law, and so maybe the government interest can't be that strong. You know, what was your sense as to the court's approach to the the government interests at, at play here? Well, it's always interesting because it feels like. Um, you know, the law should be that if you're not dealing with strict scrutiny, if you're dealing with, you know, basically a reasonableness standard, uh, the government should not have to point to some riot that happened because someone else didn't have this law. The reality is Minnesota's law is over a century old. Um, it was passed in response to, you know, what, what the state viewed as disorderly conduct uh, in, at the end of the 19th and the beginning of the 20th centuries. Um, and, you know, the fact that, that bad stuff has not happened now, um, and, and other justices made that point does not mean that it couldn't, and it does not mean that the state isn't sort of reasonable in trying to anticipate, uh, potential issues that could arise and, you know, take reasonable steps to counteract them. Um, you know, your question actually sort of raises two points. One is the, the sort of, the government, uh, the potential, uh, need for the rule and the other is the burden. And, and actually I thought, um, there could have been more discussion about the kind of what the state is actually asking people to do. Um, because really, uh, you know, Justice Alito at one point made, mentioned something about, you know, having to wear a bathrobe to vote. Um, I'm from the Twin Cities, actually. I'm from Minnesota, and, and I'm wondering if Justice Alito has ever been there in November, because you're not going to be going in, like, shorts and a T-shirt. You know, people are going to be wearing jackets. And so if you're wearing a Tea Party shirt, literally all the state is asking you to do is button your coat or take off your, your, your button and vote, and then you can go on your merry way. So, so the burden there is something that I don't think the justices totally absorbed, um, because really everyone's going to be wearing outerwear, and and it's it's literally in an ideal world it's going to be like a three minute process where you have to cover up your thing and then you can and then you can proceed. Um, but you know, this comes up a lot in the campaign finance context. The fact that the problem that these laws were originally intended to address hasn't been a problem in a while um, is not, you know, ipso facto enough to show that they're not reasonable, at least as the court has traditionally understood these issues, this, this area of jurisprudence, because, you know, in ordinary contexts, uh, lawmakers are entitled to anticipate potential problems uh, as they come along and, and counteract them. And, and as Minnesota's lawyer pointed out, or the, the county's lawyer, Minnesota is no slouch when it comes to democracy. They have the highest participation rates uh, in the country, one of, I think, in some ways, the healthiest political systems where there's robust competition and where, you know, lots of people, a large majority of the electorate participates. So I, I think that the Minnesota legislature and Minnesota policymakers are entitled to some deference here about what they think is necessary to run a smooth voting process. 
Okay, yeah, just, just to close, do you have any other sort of overall thoughts on how the arguments went? You know, sometimes you can have a pretty decent sense coming away from them where the justices are, are leaning, but it seemed kind of more uncertain here. Yeah, this, it seemed to me that this was one of those arguments um, where the justices uh, didn't get quite what they wanted from either side, and um, I would have to land on, you know, and I'm obviously sympathetic to the state, but that they weren't buying what the petitioners were selling in terms of this being, you know, a horrible, completely unjustified burden, but that they were a little bit concerned about what you sort of termed the vagueness point and the idea that there would just be kind of unfettered discretion. Um, I do think that, you know, a degree of discretion is uh, um, inevitable in this situation, but I wouldn't be surprised to see some sort of ruling that upholds the statute, but also kind of wraps the state a little bit on the knuckles and says, you know, you really should come up with a slightly uh, less... Uh, open-ended policies so that people have a little bit more of an idea of what they're doing here. Um, so I think that that's one plausible outcome. But at the end of the day, the most important thing from my perspective is, you know, that really everyone involved in the case recognized uh, that there is a compelling interest to prevent uh, confusion and intimidation at the polls. And, and you know, I was heartened to see that um, however the case turns out, you know, that's hopefully going to be the law. Okay, well, we'll find that here soon enough. Um, we can leave it there for now. Um, Dan Weiner, uh, Senior Counsel with the Brennan Center for Justice. Thanks so much for being on the podcast. I really appreciate it. It was a real pleasure. Thank you. And with that, our program for March 2nd, 2018 is complete. Thanks so much for tuning in. It is greatly appreciated. Hope you enjoyed the show, and I look forward to speaking to you next Friday. I'm Brian Cardell. Have a great week.